thrill of victory. It's the agony of defeat. Uh, it's another episode of Remember That Guy, the sports podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. I am one of your hosts, James. I am your other co-host, Justin, and we really have an amazing guest for you all today. We It was so hard to book him, but somehow this is, we this did is manage a to find time. This is a big um, guest. And who better to introduce him than himself? I am the rotating permanent guest host, Xavier. Welcome once again, Xavier. It is lovely to have you. Uh, hey, guys. It is sadly the baseball offseason now, but what that does mean is that we did just get to Make memories with another championship team, and while it is rough that we can't say the name of this team, the Atlanta baseball team, I know you're a Phillies fan, Diaz, but it's a pretty likable roster. They are. They are a great group of guys, and the way that I watch baseball now, because, you know, the Phillies, I believe, other than the Mariners now, have the longest playoff list streak. So there hasn't been a lot for me to root for. So what I do root for is just any Puerto Rican player that gets to make a run, so... Eddie Rosario, Pala Isla, he did it. So I am happy for Eddie Rosario and exactly nobody else on that franchise. But Eddie Rosario, thank you. Gracias. Pala Isla, Boricua, ya tu sabe, baby. A great example of the Ewing Theory. An Acuna, Acuna Ewing Theory? Ewing Theory. An yes. Acuna Ewing Theory. That's a, that's a tongue twister. Particularly given the outsize impact that the outfield had in the playoffs and the fact that I don't think they would have made the play for, for a lot of those guys that came on between Peterson, who I'm sorry. If you're not on the Jock Peterson train, I actually do disagree with you on that. I'm sorry. He's just lovable. Eddie Rosario, phenomenal. Uh, Adam Duvall. I would like to highlight Terrence Gore. I said this to you all on the text today. Terrence Gore has 80 career plate appearances now, including the playoffs, and three World Series rings. 40 stolen bases. 40 stolen bases in all that time, too. Maybe 42, actually, I believe, including the postseason. That is more than combined hits and walks that he has. He just loved Terrence Gore. Hated Terrence Gore in 2015 with the Royals, but I, you can't not love it at this point. Now, These are phenomenal memories. We're recording this on Wednesday the 4th, and I think it would be irresponsible almost if you were going to talk about sports to not acknowledge that uh, some very troubling and frankly unsurprising allegations have come out about Robert Sarver, owner of the Phoenix Suns. Just really some next-level shithead stuff. Uh, Somehow made hiring a, a black coach in a league that is mostly run by black players somehow made that racist like really impressively horrible racism can't imagine that he will be uh in the position that he's in for a whole lot longer but it it, it feels like we gotta you know acknowledge that well the, the the tremendous shame of it is that his punishment is going to be getting to sell his team for hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars um, so that's really unfortunate. You know, when when these things do come up, obviously, racism and misogyny are both horrific, and there's nothing funny about either of those. But I think there is at least one funny nugget to come from this story. So if you read the whole in-depth thing, mm-hmm. um, there is a specific game that they're recounting when the Suns were shorthanded and Jonas Valanciunas, the center for the Grizzlies, Uh, just dominated them in the fourth quarter. And Sarver was none too happy about this, so he marches into the locker room after, goes into the coach's room and says, why didn't you make any adjustments? You didn't do anything to try to stop him. And one of the assistant coaches just gets really into the basketball minutiae, like, 
look, we tried to front him. We tried to double off the dribble. We tried sending all these different looks at him. Like, we tried to make adjustments. And he just, like, got angry and was just like, mm, no adjustments! And just stormed out of the room. Like, just the perfect encapsulation of white privilege amongst ownership, even when confronted with his own ignorance. Uh, as was the theme of the, the full article, because I did... From a journalistic perspective, I did enjoy that each allegation was immediately followed with his like denial of it. Um, yeah, it's it's a very well written piece. It, a good read, not fun, but it's a very good read. Can't get over no adjustments. That it's no terrible. <laughs> it's just so funny, and I feel terrible for finding it funny. If you can't laugh at idiots, then you can only be sad that they run the world. So let's laugh. Let's laugh. Ha ha ha, <laughs> What a fucking idiot that guy is. Xavier, anyone making memories for you? Do you want to preach to us the good word about your lord and savior, Mike White? Yeah, I mean, what can I say other than uh, AFC Offensive Player of the Week, Mike Effin White, you know, taking over for injured Zach Wilson, just throwing a touchdown pass to Elijah Moore right now uh, as we are recording this. So Live play-by-play yeah. play on the podcast that you won't hear for another few days. But God damn it, doing it live. J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. By Sunday, I might be sad, but right now, Mike F and White. I mean, what else can I say? But really, it would be kind of crazy if you know, Mike White, the, the other one, had a really good year between that show. People like rewatched his season of Survivor. It'd be kind of crazy if after all of that heat, he ends up being the second biggest Mike White of the year. Diaz, do you have any other memories you want to share with us from right now? Sure. So what's been great the past few days, Sixers have been a little shorthanded. And that means that other guys have had the opportunity to step up. And George Niang has just been absolutely bonkers the past few games. The Sixers fans are kings of the ironic MVP chant. Um, so several years ago when we had our 10 win season, Carl Landry in our 10th win had like 20 and 8. But it was a really bad team. So that was enough to lead the team. And we gave him MVP chance. George Niang, um, when we played the Blazers without Embiid or Tobias or obviously Ben. So without our top three players, we ended up beating a pretty good Blazers team and led by George Niang. And George Niang was the recipient of the ironic MVP chant. And he's just he's been a joy. Also just incredible because you see his name. It has an S at the end of George. Seems like he has to be some kind of foreign, um, but he is American born. He sounds like an American. He has an American accent. Played at Iowa State. State. Yes. <laughs> he was a beast. The, the pride of the Cyclones. Um, but yes, George Nian has been incredible. Andre Drummond is just hilarious as Xavier does his play-by-play. Andre Drummond just <laughs> had a wide-open dunk and hit the front of the rim. And then missed the <laughs> back. But I still just don't understand. Joel Embiid has real estate in Andre Drummond's soul. And Yesterday was actually the three-year anniversary of the I got a lot of real estate in Andre Drummond's head, Joel Embiid tweet, which the third picture is uh, Embiid has a wheelbarrow full of bricks from when he was doing like the, the home building program in Africa. So he really just leaned into the, you know, I'm building a home with all the real estate that I have. It's, on, it's, been, it's been going surprisingly well. The chemistry seems to be really good between them. Drummond... A guy who knows who he is at this point just drew another foul. I love him. He's 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 my little guy. I love my little dudes. They're my guys. You're a little <laughs> seven foot dude. Well, you know, 
by center standards, if you're under seven foot. I love my little guys. Was it Andre Drummond who dated Jeanette McCurdy from iCarly? I think it was. That sounds like something he'd do. I think that happened. I think she said that he was really weird. Andre Drummond, weird guy. Don't Again, quote me on story that. story checks out. Before we move on to the main course of the show, I just do want to give one last Andre Drummond anecdote that I just very recently saw. Andre Drummond has kind of just always been a big guy who is athletic but doesn't have much basketball skill. I love him. Don't get me wrong. However many years ago, somebody tweeted at him, Andre Drummond, name one thing that you've improved since you got into the NBA. And he replied, my faith in Christ. There you go. We love to see personal growth and all of our careers and passions. We should always be looking, what can we get out of efforts that we're putting in? Uh, so that's great to hear. What a wholesome man. As we, as we do get into the quote-unquote main course, I'll go ahead and start us off this week, and I'll start with a, a quick refresher. We're talking this week about guys who came so very, very close to moments of greatness, only to come up just barely short. We gave the example of Armando Galarraga, who very famously had the umpire Jim Joyce, who, credit to him, has since apologized for what he did, but missed a call. Routine play to first base, and that cost uh, Armando Galarraga a perfect game. Uh, Hugh Darvish had Marwin Gonzalez line a ball through his legs on the final out of, uh, what was that, opening day 2013? Uh, There's plenty of examples of that. But what if I told you about a guy who one day he retires 27 batters perfectly by the name of Harvey Haddix. Harvey motherfucking Haddix. Harvey Haddix is who I bring to the table today. And Harvey Haddix one day against the Milwaukee baseball team. It's now the Atlanta baseball team. That's the name we're not going to say. So on May 26th in 1959, Harvey Haddix takes the mound. Uh, first inning, he retires Johnny O'Brien, Eddie Matthews, and Hank Aaron. And then he retires the next 24 straight batters. Is pitched a nine-inning perfect game, except that the score is tied. Zero to zero. There's a song that has been written by a quote-unquote indie supergroup called The Baseball Project. The song's name is Harvey Haddix. I thought maybe this was going to be one of those Midwestern punk things where it's just like a song about something else that they decide to tie to Harvey Haddix. No, it's just a song that straight up recounts this game. As they say in it, but after nine, the Pirates had scored a perfect game and still old Harvey had to pitch some more. Harvey Haddix was born September 18th. Big sports birthday. Uh, we have two just real piece of shit former college coaches in Rick Pitino and Tommy Tuberville. We have Ronaldo. Wait, which one? Cristiano Ronaldo? Just Ronaldo. Ronaldo the Brazilian. Yes. Ronaldo El Phenomeno, as, there as you go. he is known. A, a continuing upstanding uh, members of society, we have Lance Armstrong. And then in baseball, we have Ryan Sandberg. Just a solid quality guy. But we do have Harvey Haddix, 1925, in Medway, Ohio. You know, Midwestern guy. Gets signed by the Cardinals, as Midwestern guys that could play baseball did back then. And when he's coming up, his nickname is The Kitten. And the reason his nickname is The Kitten is there's another guy in the St. Louis Cardinals name, Harry Breacher, uh, whose name is The Cat. 
they're both left-handed pitchers. He's the older vet who takes him under the wing. And I was like, oh yeah, Harvey the Kitten Haddix. That sticks with him his whole career. I would that's that. gotta be I would that's that got, so yeah, much. I would hate like that. The first two seasons, <clears throat> that's gotta be a little bit rough. Well, so um, you, do you know why um why Doc Rivers is called Doc? So he went to a youth basketball camp and he just refused to wear anything except for his Julius Irving jersey. So he was derisively called Doc by all the coaches. And it just stuck. Say, if you're someone that commits to only wearing a Doc Irving jersey when you're, like, in youth basketball, he did get to the NBA. Credit where credit is due to Mr. Rivers. Yes. Played for the Hawks. Played oh, yeah, for, no, he was uh, good. He, and Harvey Haddock starts out pretty good, too. Harvey Haddock uh, comes on pretty strong early on in the 50s when he first comes in. 1952 is when he gets signed by the Cardinals, and he starts off, you know, in that season. There is not as much of a minor system this time. 1953 is his... Biggest year. This is his first full season, and it is probably his best season. He pitches 255 innings, which doesn't lead the league. Man, starting pitchers were just a different breed back then. They didn't give a shit. It's more about not caring about your arms and your future. So, And of course, they're also not throwing 97 mile per hour gas for those 255 innings, in which he pitches to a 20 and 9 record with a 3.06 ERA. Those are all going to be career highs. This is his best year. It is the first of his three all-star seasons. He's, for the most part in his career, going to get bounced around and traded a lot. He's going to get traded to Philadelphia first. Uh, Then he gets traded to Cincinnati. Then he gets traded to Pittsburgh. He's just bouncing all around kind of that Midwest, Mid-Atlantic area. Pittsburgh is where he does finally latch on for a little bit in 1959. He misses out on a championship for a while. That St. Louis team was in the middle of a longest ever drought that their franchise has had between championships. Do you know the longest that the St. Louis Cardinals have ever gone between championships? 16 years. It's only 18 years. Oh, it's only 18. Gonna, it's it's not far like off. What it must be like to be a fan of a team like that. Xavier. Who could say? Who could say? <laughs> Xavier. So he gets traded to Pittsburgh. Do want to point out just a couple really good names that are involved in trades that he is a part of. There's Ben Flowers and John Powers. That's great. Um, in the same trade? They are not in the same trade, but in the John Powers trade, though, is the best name. And that's Whammy Douglas. And yeah, that sounds Douglas. like 1900s baseball players. 1950s. Um, I feel like 1950s you get that enough. peak. Because exactly, still. you've got some of that aged, but you're also moving into newer names. So you can get stuff like Dick Groat. It's got guys like John Hoke. Wish it's, there was a Max Power. There, everyone needs a Max Power. There, there's, I mean, they got John Powers. They got Smokey Burgess. It's a phenomenal. That Bill Mazeroski. I hate him, so... Well, we are going to talk about him in a little bit, but first, we're going to talk about May 26, 1959, where, as I've said, first inning, he is retired. Johnny O'Brien, Eddie Matthews, and Hank Aaron. This is a good-hitting Milwaukee team. This is a very good team. They have been the reigning National League champions the last two years, 57 and 58. They won the title in 57. Every single regular, everyday player on this team, all eight of them, have an OPS plus of at least 101. This is a very good hitting team. And on this day, he is carving them up. The Pirates themselves don't do anything the first inning. We get to the second inning. Alex retires the next three. And he does get his first strikeout in that inning. The top of the third is probably the biggest missed opportunity by the Pirates. Lead off single by John Hope. 
John Hoke is on base now. John Hoke is a very good hitter. Uh, he's going to be finishing number two next year for MVP behind teammate Dick Grip. But today, on another single, he's going to make a really dumb base running error. And he's going to cause them an out on the base pass. They're, they're going to get three singles in a row. The last one actually coming off the bat of Harvey Haddock's. Harvey Haddock's by the third inning has a hit. He has not given up a hit. He was a decent hitter. He batted 197 for his career. He had around 40 or so RBIs, which for a pitcher, for career, a pitcher. That's, that's some good, good situational hitting. The RBI is somewhat a dumb statistic, but I will say I do think that is important for a pitcher to reflect. Like you're not just grounding into a double play even every time you get on base. Like you can do something with that bat to produce a run. I've always been. And this is like, this has no basis in any actual statistical reality. But I was always a believer that for a National League pitcher, if they got RBI, it should be deducted from their earned runs for that game. <laughs> so if you I gave up four, I can hear that. I can hear you that. gave up four, like but you lot. batted in three, you had a net ERA. Call it net ERA, whatever you want to call it. We can make net stand for something. Net earned run total. There you there go. There you go. And now it's just your net. By next season, we will develop what the statistic means. So watch this space. It's, um, it, it's a statistic solely dedicated to proving why Madison Bumgarner is the greatest pitcher of all time. Ooh, that's a hot take. We can talk about it. By that, metric, by that metric, I think it would bear out that Bumgarner or, you know, Babe Ruth. But He's also, he's also a pitcher that should have one more no-hitter than he has officially. He should have one more no-hitter. I mean, we'll talk about the definition of no-hitters in perfect games later on, I assure you. But right now we're in the middle of one. Again, three straight singles only for Dick Schofield to fly out with two outs. Unfortunately, it does squander their biggest inning for most of the game. But the Pirates continue to be scoreless. Uh, of course, the Milwaukee baseball team also continues to be scoreless. Harvey Haddix continues just mowing them down. And here's the thing about Harvey Haddix. Harvey Haddix is pretty much two pitches. He's a fastball and he has a slider. You might be waiting for like when the big defensive play comes up, you know, every no hitter, every perfect game. There's that one very memorable moment where someone else in the field had that catch or had that play, had that throw. Players talk about this game as one of the easiest ones that they ever had to play in the field. I tallied up the outs and, and, they have two hard-hit liners this entire game. Only two hard-hit liners actually, like, field at any point. He's getting ground-outs. He's getting pop-outs. He's continuing to rack up strikeouts. And he's really just absolutely controlling this lineup, again, with two pitches. He's facing this guy, Lou Burdett, for the Milwaukee baseball team, who is also... Very, very good. Lou Burdett actually got some MVP votes recently uh, after leading the league the last year in wins and games started. He did also lead the league in hits and earned runs because he was just a volume pitcher. But of course, baseball voters weren't as smart about that stuff then. So you look at a guy who has the most wins. Yeah, he deserves some MVP votes. He threw a lot. <laughs> he won a lot. Forget about those earned runs. Pitchers pitch and he pitched more than anybody. Yeah, no, he, he gets down-ballot MVP votes even this year in 1959. Um, he's, he's given up no runs, barely given up any hits since that third inning. This is not Harvey Haddock's mowing down a team that is just unable to do anything. They are, on the other side of the ball, pretty much killing the Pirates. It's only required two double plays up to this point. It is 
just tough, but Haddix is, is killing it. Haddix in the ninth inning, probably his best inning. He has two of his eight strikeouts uh, after nine innings. And this is where it starts to get much, much sadder. Harvey Haddix gets Hank Aaron out for a fourth time in the bottom of the 10th. He's gotten Hank Aaron out four times. One of them was a deep ball to center. But the reports of this game, because I tried to look into the accounts again, I did. We don't have stat cast data for, for the batted balls, but no one broke a sweat. It was just complete control, all weak contact. In the 11th, there is, once again, a moment. There's a leadoff single for the Pirates. Okay, come on. This has got to be it, right? Smokey Burgess steps out the catcher who's been catching a phenomenal game from his boy Harvey Haddix this year. His season-long stats were already impressive. 114 games at catcher. He slashed 297, 349, 45. That's a great season. Coming into this game on May 26th, he was slashing 353, 405, 630 at catcher. Just unbelievable. He hits into a double play. Just (laughs) Like, course, in a couple pitches, hits into a double play, erases the leadoff single. Nothing comes of it in the 11th. Harvey Haddix has now retired 33 straight batters in the bottom of the 11th. And this game is not over. We get to the 12th. Your boy Bill Mazeroski gets a single, but it's a single in the middle of three harmless flyouts. And so we go to the bottom of the 12th. Harvey Haddix again mows them down. Harvey Haddix has pitched 12 innings of perfect ball, and the game is tied. 0-0. The Pirates have gotten 12 hits at this point. Not a single run. He should punch every single one of his teammates, and they should have just ended the game there and given it to him. It's Well, they don't end the game, unfortunately. We go to the bottom of the 13th. Still tied nothing-nothing. Felix Mantia. (laughs) Felix Mantia. All right is in batting. He is batting for Del Rice of Milwaukee. Del Rice was replaced earlier in the game by Johnny O'Brien. Hit a absolute blast that apparently missed the wall by feet. It was was a good pinch hit. Johnny O'Brien almost ended this game several innings ago. Off off, uh, old Harvey Haddix, but he was retired. Felix Mantilla was brought in. He's a defensive replacement. He bats first, and Don Hoke Don Hoke, who again, next year is going to finish in the top two for MVP voting. Don Hoke throws it wide of first, ending the perfect game. Felix Mantia reaches on an air. There's oh, no, that, that sucks. It is painful. That but here's the thing. Look, it, it ends the perfect game. This is still 12 innings of no-hit ball. And it's, it remains 12 innings of no-hit ball as they bunt Tufu Mantia over to second. So it's still now 12 and a third innings. No hit ball. They intentionally walk Hank Aaron. Fair. Probably a good decision, all in all. You've gotten him out four times. Hank Aaron is on first. Felix Mantia is on second. Joe Adcock comes to the plate. He is over four in the day with two of the eight strikeouts. He fucking blasts it to deep right center field. The way that County Stadium, near Milwaukee where they were playing, was arranged. There are two fences at the edge. It clears the first fence. Some players cannot see whether or not it clears the second one. Apparently, it had to clear the second one to be a home run. It did. We, we can go ahead and say, we'll ruin the surprise. The one hit of the entire game does score the walk-off run for Milwaukee. They do walk it off here with the only hit that he gave up. 
Here's the thing. He's credited with 12 and two-thirds innings. Where that out comes from is interesting. So they hit this. Felix Mantia runs to home, scores. No question. That is the game-winning run. Hank Aaron, thinking that it was a double, when he sees Mantia score, he's like, all right, cool. That's, that's the game. He walks off to the dugout. Joe Adcock walks all the way around uh, to, to parade his. <laughs> Joe Adcock's called out. They still give him a second run. They're like, well, I mean, Hank Aaron would have scored, we guess, so we'll give you the second run. That's the, the first base umpire. Except the next day, the National League president is like, eh, no, the second person didn't cross the place. We are officially changing the score of this game retroactively from 2-0 to zero to 1-0. to zero. And so the official final count is Harvey Haddock's 12 and two-thirds innings pitched, eight strikeouts, one intentional walk, one hit, not even one earned run, but he takes the loss. It is the most perfect innings thrown in in any game by a good margin. It's like a lot of players will refer to this as the greatest game ever thrown. And again, done with two pitches. It takes on a little bit of extra spice when in 1989, Bob Buell, pitcher for the Milwaukee baseball team at the time, he revealed that Smokey Burgess, the catcher for Pittsburgh, had been standing in a way that they could read his signs, and they had been moving a towel from one side of the bullpen to the other to indicate which one of the, again, two pitches was coming. And they said this at a gala that was celebrating the game between both teams. Like, I'm going to actually give Bob Buell some credit for this. That's pretty big to like come out in that moment and say that that's what you did if that was done. Credit to Bob Buell for saying that. They did also make sure to specify that everyone but Hank Aaron took the signs. That is they the stole signs and still couldn't hit this guy? Could not hit him. Again, a team where every <clears throat> single member of the everyday lineup had a 101 or higher OPS plus. Stole signs off of him and could not get it. So Harvey Haddix misses glory then, but Harvey Haddix does get one last shot of glory the next season, 1960, in Game 7 of the World Series. I am sorry, Xavier, we do need to relive this real quick. Harvey sorry. Haddix, winner of Game 5, comes in after the immense play by the oft-forgotten-about Hal Smith, who is the backup catcher for Smokey Burgess this next year. By the way, Hal Smith, that is a name that three players have had all-time in Major League Baseball. All three of them have played for the Pittsburgh Pirates at one time or another. So just a little fun Hal Smith fact for you. Very Pittsburgh name. Do you know if any are related? No, apparently not a single one related. Uh, but makes all it even better. played for Pittsburgh. Hal Smith hits the go-ahead home run, bottom of the eighth for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now here's the thing. In the top of the ninth, the Yankees tie it up. After the first two leadoff hitters have come on, the guy that comes in relief to close out the game after getting the win in Game 5 is Harvey Haddix. Now, Harvey Haddix does let those two inherited runners score. He does not allow any earned runs himself, but he does allow those two inherited runners to score. Does tie the game up at 9, then in the bottom of the ninth. Bill Mazeroski does not waste much time in sending one uh, over the wall for the only ever Game 7 walk-off home run in World Series history. So Harvey Haddix ends with a ring. Becomes a reliever pretty soon after that in the early 60s. Uh, a nice coda to his career is his very last major league team is the Baltimore Orioles, where once he arrives there, he is reunited with the cat. 
He's reunited with uh, with Harry oh. Beecher, who's the pitching coach for the Baltimore Orioles at that time. Two of them helped mentor young Jim Palmer, so I'm very appreciative for that. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was great that they, they come back together there. So that's that's a beautiful thing. He goes on for a coach for many years. He is then a part of that 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates team's uh, coaching staff when they beat the Baltimore Orioles for a World Series. So there we go, Xavier. We all took some time to experience pain at the hand of the Pittsburgh Pirates today. I hope that makes it a little better for you. It's all right. Do you, do you remember what the box score was for that series? Well, I had that coming into that game, it was a 46 to 17. So I suppose that would make it 55 to 27 over the full series. Yeah, the Yankees doubled up the Pirates in that World Series. Yep. And Bobby Richardson of the Yankees won the, won the MVP award. Deservedly so. Deservedly so. Because the Yankees demolished them, but the, their only losses were all extremely close games. It is a bad score for the Pirates, but hey. Win is a win is a win is a win. And I said that four times because they do get four wins. They do win the World Series. Bittersweet denouement. In 1991, Marsha Haddix, Harvey's longtime wife, uh, receives a phone call one day from Major League Baseball. It is when they change the definition of a perfect game from being nine perfect innings, which had included Harvey Haddix among the list of perfect games during MLB history. They change it to nine or more, depending on the necessary length of the baseball game. And as such... Harvey Haddock's game is no longer considered a perfect game. So they Marcia, called his wife to say that he doesn't have a perfect game they, anymore. They called his home. His wife picked up. Remember, this is home phones. This is 1991. That's they don't have like, up. this is Marsha Haddock's cell phone and this is Harvey Haddock's cell phone. No, she she picks up. She says yeah, that she who? was very, very upset when she heard and she turned to Harvey and she told him and he just looked at her very peacefully and said, it's okay. I know what I did. Here's my thing. So who is the complete fucking dickhead in the MLB offices, which was, who was like, Hey, you know what we need to do right now? We need to change the rules so that one game that happened 40 years ago is no longer considered a perfect game. Like, did Harvey Haddix, like, kill this guy's fucking cat or something? I, like, I do what believe happened? that this disallowed more than just his game. I think there's at least a couple other ones that have gone to the 10th. I mean, Pe- Pedro Martinez sure. threw nine perfect innings in a game where he then gave up a hit in the 10th inning. But that would have been after 1991, I imagine, if we were talking about, like, Pedro Martinez when he could throw a perfect game. It just strikes me as one of those things where it's like, it's a fucking game, and the rules and the specifications don't really matter. They don't really change anything. So, like, why why are we doing this? Like... Imagine if the NBA went back and said the points towards your points scored don't count anymore from free throws after you hit 20. So guess what, Will? You didn't have an 100-point game. Like Everything's arbitrary in sports, but that's unnecessarily retroactively arbitrary. It's pretty have sh- you seen Major League Baseball? That's what they do. Yeah, but Manfred wasn't the commissioner for like at least twenty more years after that. Like Bud Selig wasn't. It's not just commissioner. But at least Bud Selig liked baseball. You know, like Manfred I'll give doesn't you like that. baseball. I'll give you that. I mean, we um, all know that the person that should have been the baseball commissioner would be Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is who should be commissioner of Major League Baseball. Oh, that would be great. So there's one other fun fact that I kind of know about this. So as soon as you had Har- as soon as you said Harvey Haddix, you know, my eyes lit up. Who was the opposing pitcher in that game again? Lou Burdett. So Lou Burdett, my favorite tidbit from that game is that Lou Burdett 
afterwards, everybody in the press, of course, saying, the greatest game ever pitched, blah, 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 blah. And Lou that says, well, hold on a goddamn second. The greatest game ever pitched was not enough to beat Lou Burdett. I need a raise. I believe he <laughs> successfully negotiated a better contract based on the fact that the greatest game ever pitched was not enough to beat him. Even though he gave up. Lou Burdett. Like, yeah, Lou Burdett like, pitches hits. the full game. Both of them pay- Oh, and here's a fun thing. This game started at 8 p.m. It's a night game. So you'd imagine people are, are leaving at the crack of dawn. This was a two-hour and 54-minute yeah, game. This is <laughs> two hours and 54 minutes. Pitching duels happen pretty quickly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have expected yeah. that one to go that long. One last great thing I want to share on the way out is just the name of another teammate that ran with Harvey Haddix. The man had just so many phenomenal teammates. This is really the last vestige, I feel like, of the early 1900s. And that's Vinegar Bend Maytall. <laughs> Vinegar huh. Bend Maytall. That is two words to start the uh, to, to start the first name. Vinegar. Pretty good. Um, but still not as good as Harvey Haddix. He uh, he passed away three years later from emphysema at the age of 68. Two-time World Series champion and and remembered by many as the person who threw the greatest ever game. So all credit to you, Harvey Haddix. Sandy Koufax, Cy Young, Jim Bonney, Tom Browning, Charlie Robertson, Don Larson, in the series, in 1956, why don't we add Ohio to that list? Very nice, very cool. I like old, I like old school pitching, so this was, this was fun. Well, do you want to go ahead and, and take us away, Xavier? I would love to, but first, quick uh, Mike White update. It's Mike White watch. That's not allowed to have good things. Mike White injured his arm on that touchdown pass to Elijah Moore and has not played since. And now the Jets oh. are losing 21-7 to with Josh Johnson as their quarterback. We've that cursed Mike White! Yeah, we have, uh, we have, we have Josh Johnson uh, in, in the game right now. Our and... our sincere condolences to Mike White for cursing him. We also, I mean, the San Diego State University Aztecs lost their first game after we went all in on Matt Ariza. Maybe we should stop talking about modern day athletes and just stick to the old guys. Who knows? We'll it's... see what happens with the Jets and with, with Mike White's arm. So I'm going to take you back. So before introducing my guy, we got to set the scene. The glory days of the Atlantic 10 Conference. Ooh. Love me some A-10. Between 1986 and 2001, 10 of the 15 A-10 20 championships were won between two teams that had the fiercest conference rivalry at the time. Our Temple Owls, led by John Chaney, the UMass Minutemen, coached by John Calipari. I'm sure we all know about the time that John Chaney threatened to kill uh, John Calipari after a last-second UMass win, 56-55. That happened, great video. that happened February of 1994, but you know I'm not here to talk about the A10 or about Calipari. I'm here to talk about a guy who was a freshman, the sixth man on that 1993-94 UMass team. My guy this week is Marcus Camby. Love me some Marcus Camby. Camby. Okay. All-time great rim protector. So I took the prompt and went a little differently from a one-time thing to a career of... Almost getting there, but not, but not quite. So Marcus Camby from Hartford, Connecticut, grew up rough area of the projects. He played for the uh, for Hartford Public High School, where he led the Owls to a 27-0 record in the state title 
in his senior season. Go Hartford Owls. Love those owls. Go, uh, we love and, owls. We love all flying objects. So Marcus Canby recruit, recruited to previously forlorn UMass. UMass really was not good before John Calipari. So they hadn't... Be, 1992 was the first time they had made the NCAA tournament in 30 years. That includes time they had Dr. J on campus. They still couldn't make the NCAA tourney with Dr. J. So, Amby comes in. He's a freshman on that 93-94 team. He was the sixth man. They played small ball lineup, so he was the only true center, but only played about 20 minutes off the bench. Coming into his sophomore year, he stepped into a starting role, playing second fiddle to Lou Rowe, helped UMass make the Elite Eight for the first time ever. At this point, going into his junior year, Amby and UMass were preseason 20 favorites. They were the preseason number seven. They started off the year by beating uh, number one Kentucky by double digits. On their way to a 31-1 and uh, record, another A-10 title. Camby was the national player of the year, averaging 20-10 and 10 with four blocks. Camby is a, one of the best rim protectors that well, also, you know, I've I seen. Just, I want to I put those stats in perspective for people that may not appreciate how different basketball was at the time. So not only is college basketball played in the two 20-minute halves at this time, there's also a 35-second shot clock. So the amount of possessions in a game at this time are much lower. Therefore, players' counting statistics are going to be much lower. Average four blocks a game on so few possessions is pretty fucking ridiculous. Like, I would say it would be equivalent to like seven or eight blocks a game in a modern NBA game. It's patently absurd. His per 40 blocks for his career at UMass is six. My goodness. Also, fun fact, uh, one of the starters on that uh, that UMass team, Dana Dingle, not the father of, but the older brother, Dan Dingle, a five-year Temple player who we all got to love while we were at school. All I remember about Dan Dingle is that he wasn't like a particularly good player, but he was just a hilarious man around campus. Every time you saw him, he was just a very funny man. I mean, apparently he grew up with everyone thinking that his brother was his dad, so he had to learn <laughs> to deal with that pretty, uh, pretty often. So this year, UMass, number one overall seed, completely dominant. Uh, cruise to the Final Four, where they get a rematch. Number two overall, Kentucky. Fortunately, this is where you find Camby's first close, but not quite. Despite leading all scorers with 25 points, Kentucky takes the game and goes on to win the national title. And as most of us know, this Final Four run, later vacated, uh, came out that Camby took some money from sports agents. Who cares? So wait, are I we going to get to, like, unvacate all of the things that were vacated now that people can make money off name and likeness? Because that's I, I think that's a fair take on it. Like, we, we give Reggie Bush's Heisman back. Absolutely. So these sanctions, they made, they made UMass have to pay back all their NCAA tourney money, which Marcus Camby paid off himself uh, with, his, with his NBA money. You know, the, it caused some bad blood between UMass and Camby for a little bit, but thankfully they've worked things out and Camby was inducted into the UMass's Hall of Fame in, tw- in 2010 and secretly returned to school doing online classes and got his degree in urban studies in 2017. We'll shift, we'll shift back, uh, back a bit now. After that Final Four run, UMass's first ever, which technically by the NCAA does not exist anymore, although we all know it happened, uh, Camby entered into the NBA draft. 1996, this draft is considered one of the greatest ever. 
had four Hall of Famers, five if you count uh, Ben Wallace, who was an un- who was undrafted but came came through there, and uh, six other All Stars. Maybe uh, once again was close but not quite, as he was picked second overall by the expansion Toronto Raptors. Yes, who was the first overall pick in that draft? In the 1996 draft. Hmm. Well, there's only one thing that I can say back to your question, and that would be the answer. Okay, that was good. very you funny. Know, like, no, I, I'm not laughing good. audibly, but I did. Uh, I, I'm very impressed by that. that was, I was that wondering was how it's Alan Iverson. Yes, Alan Iverson. It's Alan Iverson. A six-foot guard from Georgetown, if you will. So Alan Iverson, first overall pick. So at this point, Camby has now been almost the number one pick and almost won a national title. Hasn't gotten it. So Camby spent two okay seasons with the terrible expansion Raptors. The rookie uh, first team, but he didn't get a single rookie of the year vote. It wasn't good enough to pass Kerry Kittles for for fifth place on the on on, on the rookie of the year ballot. But, Kerry um, Kittles, man, uh, he a piece of shit. Ends up getting traded uh, to the Knicks in a draft day deal in 1998. Fortunately, he comes to the Knicks right when the lockout happens. He struggles to get any chemistry with his teammates. Doesn't really make any impact in the regular season. Four coming on strong in the playoffs. Marcus Camby was one of the lead, the leading scorers on the team when they upset the number, the number one uh, seed Heat. And then once Patrick Ewing tore his Achilles against the Pacers, Marcus Camby had three triple doubles, helping lead the Knicks over the Pacers and somehow into the NBA Finals. Hey, Unfortunately, second, second Ewing theory reference of the night is cool. Yeah, the original Patrick Ewing theory. So, unfortunately, James knows who Marcus Camby ran into in those finals and who and what two people completely shut him down. James, it is kind of ironic that the Twin Towers so efficiently just destroyed the New York basketball team. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's been like 20 years. <laughs> the Admiral and Tim Duncan completely dominated Marcus Camby in the paint. He was unable to make any impact whatsoever, and the Knicks lose games to one at this point we now have marcus camby losing the final four in the second overall pick and losing in the finals all in the space of about four years always almost there more seasons in new york you know okay but the knicks were kind of hitting their down their downswing now so he was traded to denver where he became one of the best defensive centers in the league and was a key member of the mellow nuggets the the, the best denver nuggets team until you know the past two years but unfortunately, those Nuggets also couldn't quite get over the hump. After t- 2008, uh, Camby was traded to the Clippers. He, you know, was actually kind of upset about that. He he thought that they considered him the like the, they were treating him like the scapegoat uh, for the Nuggets' struggles. After getting traded to the Clippers, things really go downhill for him. He only he bounced around the league with the Clippers, Portland, Houston. Came back to the Knicks for 20 games, but got hurt. Eventually, was traded for Andrea Bargnani. But he was never—he never suited up for the Raptors or anyone else again. Retired in 2013, so never quite got glory through through his teams. But one of the more egregious things is about him individually. So Marcus Camby finished top five in All Star voting in his position seven times, including a second place finish at in Western Conference centers behind Yao in 2006. Marcus Camby never was selected for the All Star team. That year where he finished behind Yao, they only took one center. 
2007, finished fourth in voting in voting at center. Yet the guy who's, who finished fifth was named as an injury replacement over Marcus Camby. Guess as to who this guy was. I'll give you a hint. He played for the Utah Jazz and is not American. And you said what year? 2007. Memetto Core. It is Memetto Core. Gotta get dude fucking sucked. He was so bad. <laughs> Memet Okor has one more all-star appearance than Marcus Camby when he finished behind Marcus Camby in all-star voting and was picked ahead of him as an injury replacement. Oh my god. I mean, even Nick Marcakis got the one with Atlanta at the end. He really never got one. So Marcus Camby never made an all-star game despite like I said seven top five uh, vote finishes in his uh, at his at his position. He did get one award, though, and this leads to another interesting piece of trivia. So, that same year, 2007, uh, where he, where Mehmet Okor was picked as an injury replacement over him, he did win Defensive Player of the Year, his first and okay. only individual achievement. Okay. And he finished ahead of two Spurs who cannibalized the vote for each other. James, any idea who those two Spurs were who finished second and third? 2007? Um, I would guess... Tim Duncan and Boris Diaw. I know who the second one is. Bruce Bowen, because Bruce was Bowen. <laughs> the first non-Sixers jersey I ever got was a Bruce Bowen jersey. I got it custom made from the Spurs team store because my calling card as a AAU basketball player was my defense. I had very limited offensive skill at the time, but I was a vicious defender, and Bruce Bowen was my inspiration. I love that man. So, God, the Spurs have been so good for so long. It is weird watching them, like, lose be a, a team. lot. Be mediocre. Yeah. It could it's, be worse. It genuinely is fun. I mean, I think seven of them are scoring double digits right now. It's a bunch of fun young guys. There's, It's the enjoyable lightness of hope versus the unbearable weight of expectations. <laughs> so, Camby is one of only two players to ever win Defensive Player of the Year and never be named an All-Star. The other is five-time NBA champion and two-time WNBA champion and 2000 WNBA Coach of the Year, Michael Cooper. It's interesting to me that, like, a lot of the kind of, I guess, seemingly hard-nosed guys, like Mike Cooper, Bill Lanebeer, those are the guys that have caught on as successful coaches in the WNBA. Bill Lanebeer had, you know, the title with Cleveland. He will have a title with Las Vegas at some point, I swear. And Mike Cooper, too. That's, that's It's very interesting that, like, that seems to be something that catches on. Um, it's kick-ass. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I was very intrigued going through that uh, Defensive Player of the Year list because there's been times where the Defensive Player of the Year isn't an all-star that season. Everyone other than Michael Cooper and boy Marcus Camby have been all-stars at least at one point. Unfortunately, Camby... Never wins with you. Never wins the title with UMass. Doesn't win with the Knicks. Doesn't win with the Nuggets. Never gets the All Star recognition he deserves. Glad he's got that one Defensive Player of the Year award. But um, some off the court stuff. Marcus Camby is he's done a lot of work for charity, both during his career and after, and he's notoriously quiet about it. He's actually been on record, like uh, on one of his rare interviews, saying that. A lot of NBA players have foundations and do trade work that they prefer to keep quiet about mm-hmm. because you know unwanted publicity can cause you know, issues with, with, with the foundations. So, any guess to what Marcus Camby's foundation is called? 
Make your Marcus. Pretty good. Can be on no. my wayward son. <laughs> that's a fancy team name. That's not a, that's not a charity name. I, 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 I'm dying to hear this. All right. Marcus Camby's foundation is called Cambyland. <laughs> God, that's so good. That's so good. So Cambyland helps fund educational opportunities for kids. At one point, Marcus Camby wanted to be an elementary school principal. He took classes at UMass where part of his curriculum, he had to go and be a substitute teacher at schools teaching elementary school kids. He's always been about, you know, trying to do stuff to help kids. One, one of the things that they do is a program called Marcus's Mentors, where uh, high school kids go and tutor elementary school kids, and in exchange, they get money towards college education. He does Christmas drives where he funds Christmas shopping for poor children, and he does meals on Thanksgiving and Christmas to the homeless, sponsors the Hartford Pro-Am basketball team every summer, buys sneakers and uniforms for people at, for athletes at Hartford Public, organized turkey giveaways, charity walks for school children, and dreams of opening a community center in the neighborhood where he grew up. He's also done some work with Basketball Without Borders, uh, giving basketball clinics and doing community work in Africa. He said that he really tries to model his work after Dikembe Mutombo, someone who's really you know, taken the you know, stance and their, their platform to make a difference in the area that they grew up in. And I just wanted to shout that out because he's really quiet about that. It was hard to find information. There was something from 2010, something from 2020. But people who do that really shout out to Marcus Camby for making the best of, uh, of the opportunity he was given and giving back to people who grew up like he did. What a guy. He's a real one. I mean, hey, X, I think you've made a, a phenomenal pitch to try and get him some recognition today. But we do still have one final candidate. Diaz. So, my guy, the, the second that the theme of those who came so close to glory but just couldn't quite get there, I immediately thought of this in a very literal sense. I go back to the first Super Bowl that I can vividly remember watching. I remember watching John Elway's back-to-backs at the end of the 90s. But the first game that I can fully vividly remember, and truly the first playoff run of a team that I can fully vividly remember, is the 1999 Tennessee Titans, when a man by the name of Kevin Dyson... I'm, like, visibly shaking my fist with joy right now that we get to talk about this Super Bowl. Oh my goodness, yes. Kevin Dyson was one yard short, and he is my guy. Let's go back to the beginning of that playoff run. The Tennessee Titans had relocated from Houston. They were the Houston Oilers. For a season or two, they tried to be the Tennessee Oilers. Eventually, they gained their new identity as the Tennessee Titans. Steve McNair, the late, great Steve McNair, being the first face of that franchise. So they're playing the Bills. And a very interesting thing about this game, Doug Flutie was the starting quarterback that season for the Buffalo Bills. The Bills are going into Nashville to play the Titans in the wildcard round. And Wade Phillips decides, you know what, Doug Flutie, had enough. He starts the backup quarterback. He starts Rob Johnson over Doug Flutie. Decides to make the switch just in week one of the playoffs, in the wildcard round. We could do a whole thing about that. That's crazy enough. We could do so much about Wade Phillips. Like, I'm even just now, as you say, 1999 Wade Phillips, I'm like, oh, yeah. He was a head coach 22 years ago. <laughs> he was. Son of bum, which is 
an all-time great Twitter handle, Wade Phillips, for those who don't know, his Twitter handle is just literally son of bum. His father, Bum Phillips, was also a NFL head coach, but we could we can talk about that later. We're talking about Kevin Dyson right now. The Titans kind of just dominate the whole game, but it's one of those games where they're just not getting enough points on the board. It's staying close. They're up 16 to 15 late, and the Bills managed to go down and kick a presumably game-winning field goal, 41 yards with 16 seconds left on the clock. And this sets the scene for one of the most incredible plays, one of the most memorable plays in NFL history. But I want to give both of you and our listeners at home some pretext about what makes this play even more incredible. So, of course, I'm referring to the Music City Miracle, which was Lorenzo Neal, the fullback, receives the kickoff. He hands it to Frank Wycheck, runs towards the right sideline, stops on a dime, throws back a... Perfect lateral. And when I say perfect lateral, I mean that if this ball went one more millimeter forward, it would have been an illegal forward pass and none of this play counts. It is the perfect lateral on the perfect parallel line to Kevin Dyson, who, of course, catches it, runs it in for the touchdown. Here's what people may not know about that play. Kevin Dyson was not the first option to be the guy to receive that lateral. He was not the second option to be the guy to receive that lateral. Both top options were out for injury in this game. So, while the Titans had practiced this play before, of course, in the lead-up to a playoff game, they're not thinking, hey, let's figure out who we want the guy to be to catch the crazy lateral when Frank Wycheck throws it back. So, this is literally a spur-of-the-moment decision by Jeff Fisher. He's looking around the sideline, and he says, hey, Kevin, you know that crazy schoolyard bullshit play we do on the kickoffs? You want to be the guy that catches it? And Kevin says, in as many words, uh, I mean, sure, coach, if that's what you want me to do. Kevin Dyson, whenever he brings this up, emphasizes how unconfident he was in Jeff Fisher telling him to do that. But the season's on the line. I mean, Jeff Fisher is not a coach that historically inspires a lot of confidence. He's a great interview. Seems like a super cool dude. He also is is allergic to not going 7-9. and Mr. Seven and Nine himself, of course. You can only picture him now as Adam Sandler from The Longest Yard calling the schoolyard bullshit play. And that's all, that's all I want. I, I want Adam Sandler to play Jeff Fisher in the world's worst biopic. Directed by the Safdie brothers coming to you <laughs> next year. <laughs> Uncut <laughs> Gems 2, two cut, two gems. Electric Gemaloo. <laughs> but anyway... Another fun thing about that play is Lorenzo Neal, of course, is one of the greatest fullbacks of all time. We could do a whole thing about Lorenzo Neal. Lorenzo Neal was not, in this play, supposed to be the guy to catch it. It's supposed to just be the standard kickoff returner is the one to catch it, to then hand it to Frank Wycheck, who then throws the lateral to the player that is not supposed to be Kevin Dyson, but is now because of injury circumstance. When they go out on the field, as they like do their huddle right before, Lorenzo just says... Hey guys, I'm going to catch it. Lorenzo Neal is not known for his hands, but we're at this desperate point in the season. Everybody's just like, okay, sure, Lorenzo, fine. You can fucking catch the ball, whatever. Of course, he had a great catch. Handed it right to Frank Wycheck. The reason why that Wycheck throw was so perfectly close to parallel and not obviously backwards, Kevin Dyson is not in on the practice on this play. So if you remember from the replay angle, Wycheck has the ball on about the 25, and Dyson is ready to catch the lateral on the 27. That's why he was on the 27, because he had no clue what the fuck he was doing. 
He had no practice <laughs> on this play. So Wycheck literally just has to take the blind trust throw and just like, I guess I'm going to throw this right down to 25. And sure enough, to me, it's the most incredible throw in NFL history because any other throw, you just got to get it to the receiver. But here he has to specifically worry about the dimensions in which he is throwing that ball. And he throws it literally perfectly. And then, of course, Kevin Dyson catches it, races down the sideline, into the end zone. The infamous shot of Steve McNair and just incredible disbelief being held back by, I believe, Jeff Fisher. So that is what started this whole playoff run. That's what enables the Titans to then go on their run to go to the Super Bowl and take on the greatest show on turf, the St. Louis Rams. Of course, the Rams had their own incredible story that year. Trent Green was supposed to be the starting quarterback. Trent Green gets hurt. Kurt Warner comes in off of the Iowa grocery store. Iowa Barnstormers. The The Iowa Barnstormers again, baby. Who thought they were going to get two references this early? Love it. Back to back. Iowa Barnstormers just dominating the podcast. Kurt Warner comes in. They become the greatest show on turf. Isaac Bruce, Tory Holt, Marshall Falk, Ricky Prohl, all those guys. And they're just the dominant team. The Titans in that Super Bowl... They don't put up any points in the first half, but they managed to hold the greatest show on turf to just three field goals. Second half, back and forth, as we remember. The Titans fought back to tie it at 16 late in the fourth quarter, and then Kurt Warner just hits Isaac Bruce on a 75-yard bomb with about two minutes left to put the Rams up 23-16. to Of course, as we remember, the Titans drive down the field. What gets lost to time a lot is the play that sets up that final play of the game, the penultimate play of the game, is one of the most incredible plays I've ever seen a quarterback make. Steve McNair is immediately draped by two defenders, two defensive linemen, shakes them both off. Kevin Dyson had run a double move that took him to the left side of the field. McNair is rolling out right. And Dyson, with his wherewithal, stops on a dime, cuts back across the field, Dyson catches a 30-yard pass down to the 11 with six seconds left. And the Titans call the timeout. The final play that's called, they ran a quad set. So there's two receivers to the left and there's two receivers to the right. The play was designed such as the two receivers on the left, I couldn't tell you who they were, but they were running the man concept. On the right was Frank Wycheck and Kevin Dyson. Kevin Dyson is the motion man to reveal if it is man or zone. If it's zone... It's coming to Dyson's side of the field. So Dyson does a pseudo motion. Man does not follow him. And as he does this motion, he now knows, oh shit, the ball's coming my way. Except he was not the primary read on this play. The primary read is Frank Wycheck. And they ran a very simple NFL concept against the zone. Wycheck is running just a straight line to the end zone. And if the linebacker goes with Wycheck, and the read is to hit Dyson on the slant underneath. The linebacker stays with Dyson. The read is to hit wide check into the end zone. The linebacker, Mike Jones. Who? Mike Jones. Thank you. Follows wide check. So Dyson, as he breaks on this slant, comes relatively wide open. But Mike Jones makes a tremendous play. As soon as he breaks his shoulders, he knows what's coming. He knows that quick slant's coming. So he breaks back to converge on the play. Dyson makes the catch. To hear Kevin Dyson talk about this, he says... The second he caught it, he just assumed he was scoring. He said he saw nothing but all that yellow paint of the Rams end zone in front of him. And in his mind, he's just making it into the end zone. But Mike Jones, it's just enough of him. Tyson is so strong that he goes to swing Jones. 
But with Jones's grip, he has now actually swung Jones far enough around that he can now grab his other leg with his other hand. He wraps him up. Tyson desperately reaches for the end zone, and yet he is one yard short. Final play of the Super Bowl, and the Titans lose 23-16. Listening to Kevin Dyson talk about it, so they actually spoke, and when he spoke with Mike Jones later on, because it, it always fascinates me when it comes to these incredible plays that we remember how the players are they're not even acquaintances going into it, but now because these two men have shared that moment, they're now friends later in life. And Mike Jones always says, like, hey, man, like, if it wasn't for your core strength swinging me around, I wouldn't have gotten that other arm on you. So the, the way it's always described is it was a perfect throw by McNair. It was a perfect route and catch by Dyson. It was a perfect tackle by Mike Jones. One of those is going to cancel out the other. Exactly. And it, it's, it's like the, eight, the time old adage, great defense beats great offense. Great defense beat great offense in this instance. And amazingly, so that was his second season. For a guy to have that big of a hand in, I would say, inarguably, the two most famous plays in Tennessee Titans football history. Maybe you would say that Derrick Henry 99-yard run, but that wasn't in the playoffs. These are the two you most could, consequential plays in franchise history. Yeah, and like they've got two pretty big playoff wins against the Ravens, but neither one is a crazy, oh, that's the moment that everything flipped. Right. So Dyson has these two incredible moments in that playoff run. Has a relatively normal career, I guess, for lack of a better term. He played five seasons with the Titans, played one more season for the Panthers in 2003 when they went to the Super Bowl. Also the Patriots. I I mean, rough because he loses again and comes very close. But uh, hey, that's I mean, that's what that's presumably five years. And then another year, that's three contracts at this point. That's a fucking great NFL career. Three contracts. Right. Right. And the reason why I mentioned this, like it's just a footnote, is he was not really involved with that team. He was pretty injured, only appeared briefly in that Super Bowl. So I'm sure it does not even come close to that Super Bowl with the Rams in terms of heartbreak for him. So he has a six-year NFL career, and he retires. But what Kevin Dyson goes on to do after his career is, to me, just as important and worth noting as what he did during his career. Xavier mentions that Marcus Camby had dreams of being a principal. Well, Kevin Dyson, after getting so close to his one dream, was not going to let himself get so close to just another dream. Kevin Dyson, after retiring from the NFL, I should mention he was a four-year college player at Utah, Graduated uh, with his degree in sociology, Bachelor of Science. And when he retired from the NFL, he then went on to get two master's degrees and a doctorate okay. degree in education. So, so I'm sorry, Dr. Dyson. Dr. Doc- Dyson is how we should be referring to this guy. Dr. Kevin Dyson. Uh, love the Dr. Equation. Kevin Dyson. Dr. Kevin Dyson. Because with his high education degree, spent some time as a football coach. He's a wide receiver coach. He's an offensive coordinator. He's a running backs coach at a few different schools throughout Tennessee. Dyson even is a head coach uh, for a for a Tennessee high school for some time. Then coach decides, Dr. Dyson. Coach Dr. Dyson. But then decides that his best impact can be if he is able to fully dedicate himself to education. He then became an assistant principal at Grassland Middle School in Franklin, Tennessee. And as of this past April 22nd, 2021, he was named the principal of Centennial High School in Franklin, Tennessee. So to me, the second career, even more important than the first career, I hate to say it, Kevin, Dr. Kevin, I would say even more successful than the first career. 
but he's doing great things as a principal down in Tennessee now. I watched a beautiful profile with just a lot of his students talking about what a role model he is, how inspirational he is. All the teachers say how great he is with all the kids. Acts like just another guy, for lack of a better term. Like he's just another guy. You would never get the idea that he once was the key player in two of the most consequential plays in Tennessee Titans history. He's just another principal doing his best for the students of Tennessee. So that is just about everything I have to say about Kevin Dyson. But I just want to throw in one more very fun fact about him. The Dyson family, very big football players. They all love football. Is a brother, Andre Dyson, who was drafted by the Titans. They played with each other for two years. There is one game that Kevin Dyson caught a touchdown and Andre Dyson had a pick six. And to Hell date, yeah. That's cool. they are the That's only great. pair of brothers in NFL history to both score a touchdown in the same game. Dude, that's phenomenal. But yeah, that's uh, I was going over that with my roommate Brian, and it's it's hard to imagine when that record could be broken because the Watts, they're defensive. Even if they play against each other, are they both going to get pick sixes slash scooping scores in the same game? There was, wasn't there a tight end Watt brother or a fullback Watt brother? Uh, so that was Derek was a fullback with, I believe, the Chargers. He's, um, he's the Leangelo of the Watts. Right, exactly. But he at least still made it to the league. Seems pretty hard and you to did, imagine. You did every once in a while in Houston. They, they had J.J. Watt as like a goal line option once or Tiki twice a game. and Rondé ever play against each other? They have to have it, right? They definitely did play some games against each other, but never did they both score a touchdown in the same game. So, yeah, there you go. Dr. Kevin Dyson was just one yard short from sending the Super Bowl to overtime. Or maybe they would have gone for two. We'll never know. His his second career was just as good, if not better, than his first. Making a difference what now is, as a high school was principal. Was and is. Let's, let's give him credit for his ongoing I love the efforts. focus on education so far today. Education is important, people. Well, gentlemen, we have once again reached that time. Uh, it is time for us to deliberate for our Hall of Guy induction. Uh, do either of you have opening statements that you want to lead with? You know, I, I said to you previously, I don't want to ever advocate for my own person first, but I really loved researching Marcus Canby. I think this is our hardest yet. First of all, the first thing I would say is not only do, obviously, I knew my own guy. I knew both of your guys as well. And I love all three of these guys. Harvey Haddix's story is one of my favorite random things in baseball. Like it's up there with Bonehead Merkel and just one of my favorite yeah. stories ever. <laughs> I love Marcus Camby. I always thought he was incredibly underrated watching him growing up. And then, yeah, everything with Kevin Dyson is just also great. I would defer to the fact that Marcus Camby was passed over so many times for a first place. And I think it's time that he's acknowledged as the first place guy that he is. So that would be where I would lean. Well, I mean, to be fair, look, I, I like Marcus Camby a lot. I was kind of glad that Xavier led with Marcus Camby. All three of ours very much. Harvey Haddix is the only one of these three with a ring. So by all means, Ke- you know, Kevin Dyson, uh, if, if you want to make a last pitch for me on Kevin Dyson Diaz, I'll listen. But, but I definitely lean Marcus Camby. I think that Dr. Dyson is going to sleep well at night knowing that he's making a difference in the lives of all these Tennessee school children. <laughs> Marcus Canby needs a win. so We need to rectify Memetto Core being chosen as an injury replacement over Marcus Canby. Okay, Kor- here's what we'll do. 
we will we will induct Marcus Camby. We were also going to enact a lifetime ban. Memento Core, you are allowed on the premises. <laughs> you can come and, and take in the history, take in the culture. However, your name shall never grace these halls. I think that's the way to, to properly bring in Marcus Camby. Because he seems like he'd like a big old middle finger to that guy in this situation. <laughs> Memento Core, you're fucking banned. He is literally the example. If you if you said to me, Hey Diaz, name a absolutely trash European center. Memento Core is probably the first name I would think of. That's a disgrace. And we're gonna write that wrong today. Memento Core is banned. Marcus Camby is in. Marcus Camby. Welcome to the Hall of Guy. That's everything we got this week, folks. Uh, as always, you can check us out on Gmail, remembering guys at gmail.com and and send us Anything you want to talk about related to guys, we've got a Twitter at Remember Guys Pod. Uh, either of you guys want want to shout out anything while we're here? I want to shout out the better Curry brother, who is Seth Curry. He is legitimately and unironically playing at an all star level right now, and people need to acknowledge it and people need to embrace it because the era of Seth has begun. I'll shout out the Jets defense, which, like me, is only half paying attention to the Jets game and have now given up four touchdowns and four possessions, and the Colts are about to score a fifth and five possessions. Has Mike White re-entered the game? Because I got a notification on my phone that his helmet was on. Mike White has not re-entered the game because the Colts are about to score on the first possession after halftime because they are right now four for four on, t- on drives with touchdowns and are about to be five for five. Hey, I really appreciate you guys being in Cincinnati, though. Anyway, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. This has been Remember That Guy. I'm James. I'm the permanent rotating guest host and number one Marcus Camby fan, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And like the great band ACDC once said, it's a long way to the top if you want to be a guy. Until next time. <laughs>